Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, as nursing homes are hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic, we sit down with the woman representing home care and nursing home care workers in California. That's right. We are very excited to have April Verrett here with us today, or at least virtually here with us. She is president of SEIU Local 2015. It is the largest union of its kind in the nation, not just the state. Uh, April is joining us via Skype. Welcome to The Breakdown. Hi, Scott. Hi, Marissa. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So um, we should mention that your union represents, I think, some 385,000 care providers in California, including 20,000 workers in nursing homes. Can we we want to talk to you, obviously, about all the news. But can you just start out by kind of laying out for our listeners like who your members are? What do they do and why are they at the center of this pandemic right now? Absolutely. There are few things that I enjoy more than talking about the members of Local 2015. Um, As you said, we represent close to 400,000 what we call long-term care workers, Um, people who do home care work predominantly, about 380,000 of our folks that we represent do home care and 20,000, as you said, work in nursing homes or skilled nursing facilities, as they're sometimes referred to. Our home care workers um, do the task for elderly and and folks living with disabilities that they cannot do for themselves. They cook for them. They clean for them. They do their grocery shopping. They run their errands. Um, In some instances, depending on need, they help them with their medications, bathing, grooming, um, they they do what is what needs to be done to help people continue to live at home independently and outside of institutions. It's hard. Um, to... our, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Go finish. Um, our nursing home workers are CNAs, housekeepers, mm. dietary workers, right? The folks who work in nursing homes, very similarly to our home care workers, they are caregivers, Um, They make sure nursing homes are clean. They make sure there's food. Our CNAs are the, in many ways, the front line of of, um, the the workers in in nursing homes. They bathe nursing home residents. They hold their hands and read them stories if that's what needs to be done. They feed them, they groom them, um, and they attend to their basic care needs. You know, the intimacy that they share with the people they care for is just so extraordinary. And, you know, to people who rely on them and their family members, of course, they are heroes. But, you know, in this pandemic, their member, your members are being deemed sort of essential workers, you know. And I'm wondering, how does that, how does that strike you? I mean, is it finally, like, finally we're getting the respect we deserve? <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, I think essential it, um, is is a great word to describe our members and what they do. 
I also like the word they are caregivers and they are loving people. We take care of, we love California. Um, you know, when you are older or, or have, um, or you're infirm, you know, you need people to just care about you. And our members stand in the gap every single day, caring for those who need love, caring for those who need support. And they keep people out of institutions. They keep people out of hospitals. Um, and in this time of the pandemic, um, that there's a huge need, right, for our members to continue to stand in the gap and keep people safe. When we first learned that the governor were ordering um, elderly and those with underlying conditions to shelter in place, if you remember, they were the first ones of us who were told to stay home. We began very early, know, from that very early stage, knowing that our members were going to be hugely important in this pandemic. Elders cannot shelter in place without their home care workers, right? Someone has to go out yeah. and get the groceries. Someone has to go out and pick up the prescriptions from the pharmacy, um, help them with their banking needs. And so, Yes, right. These workers have done this work largely in the shadows for generations, and and now they're getting a little bit of the shine that they're due. Well, I want to talk about their safety and, and the situation. I mean, obviously, nursing homes are, as we said, sort of at the epicenter of a lot of the outbreaks in California. Um, and we've heard a lot of things about personal protective equipment, whether they have it, um, you know, mm -hmm. about fe the federal government seizing resources that hospitals and maybe even nursing homes kind of hoarding them um, in case there's this influx. Can you talk about, I think, both the nursing home and the at-home workers, like, do you feel like they have the resources they need to stay safe in this moment? Or is that an ongoing challenge for you guys? It's absolutely an ongoing challenge. Um, I, I want to give my, my I want to take my hat off to um, our governor, Gavin Newsom, and his administration, who we have, who we view as partners, who we've been working with through this crisis. They um, have made available, are making available personal protective equipment earmarked for home care workers, targeted at those who um, are working with people who have consumers, as we call them, who they know are infected with the COVID crisis. Um, that PPE is being sent to counties, and then the counties have to get the PPE to the workers. If you can imagine getting, you know, PPE to hundreds of thousands of individuals across the state of California isn't easy. And so it is absolutely still an ongoing crisis. Though we're seeing more PPE made available for home care workers, we haven't quite seen them have in hand all that they need. Um, and it's an ongoing struggle. Um, I think, you know, the the supply chain crisis, the 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 price gouging that we see happening with PPE is only making this situation um, more acute. It's it's some better in nursing homes, but we still hear that depending on the facility and depending on where it is in the state, the 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 protective equipment that our members need is readily available or it's not available at all. Um, just the, the stories that I hear from our members who have had to literally use garbage bags and rags in, in lieu of medical grade PPE, it's astonishing, it's sad, and it makes me really angry. 
Is there any sense, you said, that depending on where they are in the state, do you have any sense of what parts of the state or what counties are better or worse and which counties are being more transparent about what they're doing, what the situation is with outbreaks, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't, at this point, I don't want to point fingers. I don't think it's going to serve anyone. And we continue to work with all of the counties where our members um have care, or, uh, excuse me, where our members work and, and they have needs, you know, but what I will tell you, there are some counties that we, we definitely have a better working relationship with than we have others. And there's some counties that just have more infrastructure. Our larger counties, obviously, mm-hmm. places like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Alameda, Santa Clara, right? Those counties have more resources than some rural counties where we represent workers, such as um, Humboldt County or uh, Del Norte. You know, we represent mm-hmm. members all over the state. Um, and in places in the Central Valley. So, you know, we, we're continuing to work with everyone and make sure counties have the support that they need because our members need the counties to be supported in this moment. Yeah, I mean, that's talking about the government side, but you have mm-hmm. this unique position where a lot of your members do work for the government through IHSS, but then others work for these private skilled nursing facilities. Um, there's a wide variety of owners and actions that they're taking. And we've heard a lot of concerns about transparency, right? That we don't know where outbreaks are happening or that some nursing homes may not even be testing because they don't want the answers. Can you talk about that Mm -hmm. a little bit? Like what's your role in pushing these individual businesses? And is there, I mean, uh, is that sort of all over the map too? Because it sounds like anecdotally it is. It absolutely is all over the map. Look, we're a union. We represent workers, and part of what we view as our role and responsibility as a union is to hold employers accountable, right? And our workers, our members who work in nursing homes, need protection and they need support. And there are, again, I'm not going to point fingers, um, but the time may come to, oh, come to on. do that. <laughs> Just one finger. <laughs> Just a couple fingers. Yeah, exactly. um, I will say that we work with employers. I'm going to give a shout out to Crystal Sorlazano, um, who operates nursing homes across the state of California, who who is not too, um, she, she's not too arrogant to say, yes, I need help. Right. Mm -hmm. And she views 2015 as a partner. And we are working together to make sure the workers in those facilities that she, you know, operates and where we have members, we're working together to get them PPE, you know, um, but they're not. But what about yeah? What everyone about like who testing operates a nursing and, home is not crystal, yeah. <laughs> right? But what and what about testing t- transparency? I mean, do you guys feel like you, the state, the the key players, have a handle on the situation on the ground right now, or is that still no, a big problem? I, I think it's still a work in progress. When um, when the data was finally released, I think it took too long for the data to be released. Quite frankly of the number of cases of COVID connected to skilled nursing facilities across the state. Again, I wasn't surprised by the data because I know what our members have been telling us anecdotally, but you know, damn it, if it doesn't make me mad, right? Yeah. That hundreds of nursing home workers across the state have, have this virus, right? Thousands of nursing home workers across the state have this virus as do the residents 
that they love and that they care for. And no, there's not enough PPE in these facilities to keep them safe. And there needs to be 100% reporting um, and, and with frequent updates of the cases of COVID. And I believe there needs to be 100% testing. Every nursing home worker, every resident in nursing homes need to be tested now because we will not mitigate the spread if we can't wrap our arms around actually who's walking around with the virus. April, your members are largely women of color. Many of them are low-wage earners. And we've seen across the country and in California that this pandemic is affecting people disproportionately depending on race, uh, especially Mm -hmm. African-Americans in California, but uh, Latinos and Asian-Americans in other parts of the country. And of course, your members are in some of those uh, groups as well. I'm wondering, to what extent do you think this whole pandemic accentuates uh, as well as exposes some of those inequities that you have seen in the system for a long time? Yeah, uh, Scott, this pandemic has laid bare as a woman of color, as a as a black woman, um, things that I have, you know, been raised with and have known all of my life, right, about the inequities that exist in the systems and the structures that this country was built on that hold this country up. You know, um, there's an old saying that when America catches a cold, black folks have the flu, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't um, any different. Um, there are real structural deficiencies in our country. Um, and all too often, people of color, women, bear the brunt of it. Um, and I hope that we have reached a, a point in our country that we will no longer um, cast a blind eye um, and really put our hands over our faces, right? I don't think you can live in this country and not see the inequities that exist, but some of us choose to ignore them. But I would hope that this is a moment where we no longer choose to ignore them, but as we piece the country back together, piece our economy back together, we do it in a way that is about correcting these inequities. And it's not gonna be something that we can snap our fingers and and see change overnight, but it's gonna take all of us working together um, around a set of shared values and goals to really make this country one where all of us stand um, a chance at the American dream. All right, April, we're going to take a short break. And when we get back, we want to talk to you more about your life story and how you ended up at SEIU 2015. We're talking to April Verrett, and you are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are talking today with April Verrett. She leads the nation's largest long-term care union, SCIU 2015. And April, before we went to the break, we were, talk- you, we were talking about the inequities that this is really exposing in terms of racial and other socioeconomic. I want to talk to you about where your life story and how you, you ended up leading <laughs> this, this union. Um, I have seen some clips. You talk about you were born on the south side of Chicago, and your mother died when you were, I think, like two weeks old. Mm -hmm. Tell us what happened and and who ended up raising you? What was your childhood like? Yeah. Um, So I am, I am a very, very proud Southside girl um, from Chicago. And um, as you said, my mother um, uh, had a a trouble bearing children. Um, And she, she passed away um, after I was born just two weeks later. And I was raised by my grandmother. Um, her name was Lucy. Um, and I've actually thought a lot about my grandmother, um, over the, the, this period during this pandemic. Um, and she was, you know, my world, she was the strongest person, um, that I think I'll ever know. Um, my grandmother was born and raised in Mississippi in the Jim Crow South. And as a young woman had an opportunity to find a better life for her and for my father, she was a teenage mother. And she, you know, moved to Chicago as a young adult. And um, she found herself, you know, as, as still a relatively young woman raising um, my sister and I mm-hmm. um, after our mother passed away. And, um, you know, she I just learned quickly what it was to to struggle, um, having a mother and subsequently my father passed away when I was six, you know, being a child who experienced a lot of loss, a lot of trauma as a young kid, um, you know, it, I could have had a very different life story, but I had someone who stood in the gap for me. Right. And that was my grandmother. And so now fast forward 40 some odd years, I get to work with people like my grandmother, who are lovers, who are caregivers, who are essential. Um, mm-hmm. And I just am honored that I can live in, in honor of my grandmother and, and build power and build an organization with women like her. Poor, hardworking women of color who stand in the gap each and every day. One of the things that makes your life story so compelling and, and you know, just the, the road you've traveled to get where you are today, you mentioned that your mom died when you were young and your dad died when you were six and he was in jail, I think you've, mm-hmm. I've heard you say before. Talk about the circumstances of that and, and what all of that, how all, all of that affected you as a little girl. Sure. Um, yeah, my father um, committed suicide. He hung himself oh. in, in a jail cell. Um when I was six, he was 32. Um, and so being a, a child of um, parents who died young and, 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 and also my grandmother died relatively young. She was 67 years old when she passed away. I had all of this um, stuff, if you will, as a young person to, to process and to deal with. And what I, what I committed myself to was helping to change the world so people like my mother, like my father, like my grandmother stood a different chance, had different opportunity than they did. Um, In this country, 
a 28 year old woman should not die from childbirth. Right. I mean, that's what I was thinking. Like all of this fits into the prison you're talking about here, right? The Mm -hmm. maternal health of black women, Mm -hmm. um, incarceration. Did you, I mean, how did you then resolve that and make that happen? Because the South side of Chicago when you were growing up, I mean, and still is not the easiest place to, um, to, to, I think jump into those leadership roles to, 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 stu- you know, to study hard and to, to make academics uh, a focus, like talk about how, like, how did you do that? And, and was your sister on board with you? Like, what was the family mm-hmm. dynamic? <laughs> yeah, no, my sister is, you know, is my biggest, um, one of my biggest inspirations and she's my biggest champion and my biggest hero, um, my best friend. And she's still in Chicago. I miss her dearly. Um, but you know, we, um, I don't know. I, I feel like in so <laughs> many okay. ways, it's just my life, right? Yeah. It's just my life. I can't say that I had a master plan. Um, I fell into union organizing. I always knew what unions were. My grandmother was a union member. I knew unions made a different in, difference in my life. Um, but I, I kind of fell into union organizing and fell in love with it. And it honestly, it helped me, you know, being in a position to work with women, women of color to build unions and to build organization helped all of my stuff make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it gave me a way to channel all that I had been feeling, experiencing, in my life, it helped me make it make sense. And it's become my life's purpose and my life's work. But I can't say that at 26 years old, when I became an organizer, I had it all figured out. You, um, it's been a journey. You were <laughs> you were doing that organizing in, in uh, the Midwest uh, before you mm-hmm. came out here. And uh, what brought you out here? And what were the differences and similarities between the issues that you had to deal with as a union person uh, you know, in the Midwest versus California? Yeah, I started my career in Chicago before I moved to Los Angeles um, five, almost five years ago. I never lived anywhere else outside of Chicago, never thought I'd leave home. But the opportunity to come and build 2015, to come and be a part of uniting at that time, home care workers and nursing home workers were in different organizations but we had a chance to build a union that was just for them, just about them. And so what I've been a part of, and I couldn't resist, right? It, it, it was the only reason I would ever have left Chicago was to come build this union, this organization with these workers at a time when I feel that our state, um, our country, our world needs these women to have the power to forge a new labor movement, to forge real transformation in our our society that only poor women of color can lead. Um, And so I'm happy to be here doing that work. What, I mean, can can you talk about like how that work may or may not have changed since the election of President Trump? And because we are in this deep blue state and I would imagine, I mean, Mm -hmm. we should say for folks who don't know the union you came from, I mean, you had worked your way up and you were leading this union that didn't just cover Illinois, right? This was Indiana, Missouri, Kansas. It's the largest in the Midwest. Um, But I, I don't know, like, it's like we are here in this deep blue state, but you guys are still fighting for raises for your members, things like that. Just can mm-hmm. you talk about like the political dynamics of the last few years? Sure. California um, offers a platform 
as California goes, I believe the country goes. Because we are deep blue, because there's there's more opportunity here to craft progressive policy, to do things that can become a model for the rest of the country. And, um, and so the work that I do here is just as much, and for me, about the South Side of Chicago as it is for South LA and East LA, because I believe I have an opportunity to create and to build something here that shows the rest of the country what's possible. Um, and I am more dedicated than ever. Um, in our local, we call it our justice agenda. I'm more dedicated than ever to our justice agenda, agenda, which isn't just about worker and economic justice, but it's about immigrant justice and housing justice and environmental justice and disability justice. Um, because all of those things affect our members' lives. They don't just go to work. They live in communities that need support. They, they live in a, you know, um, their, their kids need to be able to go to good schools. They need to be able to breathe fresh air. And so we don't just work around worker and economic issues. We want to transform our society into one where people, again, like my mother, like my father, like my grandmother, could stand a chance. And here in California, we can make that possible. And our country needs the women and men of 2015 to lead, to lead us to a different place. Because I know Trump's America is not one where we can thrive. You know, we are hearing about all the issues around uh, nursing homes in particular as as it relates to this uh, pandemic. And I'm just wondering, would you knowing what you know, how, how would you feel about having a family member in a private home, especially one, you know, that has some of the issues that you, your union has to deal with? Mm-hmm. You know, I will say there are some folks who are um, home care advocates that we should just get rid of nursing homes, right? They shouldn't exist. Let's shut them all down. I don't believe that's possible, right? I think that nursing homes are an important part of the long-term care system. But I wanna be a part about making sure every nursing home is one that I would want, you know, my grandmother, if she were still here, to live in. And I think we can, in this moment, lift up that our long-term care sector needs work. It needs more investment. Um, And so how are we transforming these facilities where some people are now taking their loved ones home? And if you can do that, you should. I believe people should be able to live in the setting of their choice. And if they want to stay at home, we need to provide the resources for people to stay at home. But when people have to be in nursing homes, let's fight like hell to make sure they're quality ones. I know you've talked, April, here and in other places about using this moment to transform, to do some of the things your union has already been working for. At the same time, we're seeing economic collapse potentially Mm -hmm. on par with nothing that we've ever lived through. Um, We have a lot of fractures between within the federal government, between the federal government and the states. How optimistic are you then? Because I think some of the real structural Mm -hmm. changes you and other progressives are talking about are also expensive and and, and it it is an inflection moment, but I'm just curious, like, what do you see as the path forward for that kind of optimism? Yeah, I'm honored to have been appointed to the governor's task force on business Mm -hmm. and jobs recovery. There's like like 2,000 of you guys, right? Oh, like a gajillion. (laughs) (laughs) A gajillion but I'm going to make my voice count. Um, and, um, I, but I do believe that with this governor and the leadership of Anne O'Leary and Tom Steyer, that there's a moment 
right? I wasn't in California in 2008, but I hear stories that the state chose austerity, right? As opposed to choosing a more WPA model for recovery. I think it's a moment that we need to invest. We need to create jobs. We need to call not just on our government for investment, but we need to call on our partners in the business um, and corporate community to figure out how we are investing in the people of California and betting on our recovery being around people, being around changing the circumstances that create health disparities that we see um, as part of the reason that COVID has ravaged communities of color. Let's invest in those communities and change the circumstances for everybody. I think it's possible. April, we are really short on time, but we always like to end on something a little lighter. And I'm just wondering, you know, given the intensity of the work that you and your members do, what do you do, especially now, to relax and to have fun? Oh, I miss sports. <laughs> <laughs> the Lakers or who? Uh, I'm She's a, a Chicago girl. Um, I am a Chicago girl, but I am a LeBron fan and have oh. been for a really long time. So um, I'm going to be a sports junkie and watch the NFL draft tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. And, if they can't play. I'm going to, yeah, I can't play, but I can watch. And I'm going to do like everyone else and continue to watch The Last Dance, right? The the, yeah. the documentary series on my Chicago on Bulls. And so yeah, that's, what that's I love. awesome. Good. All right. SEIU 2015 President April Verrett, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Find me on Twitter at MLagos. Thanks for being here. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm David Axelrod, CNN senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, and host of the Axe Files podcast. Join me each week as I interview key figures shaping our world from politics to the arts to sports and beyond. Listen on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play The Axe Files with David Axelrod.